Welcome to the home for Bible geeks everywhere. This This is the Edge Podcast with Scott Logan. What's up, Bible geeks, and welcome to the Edge Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Logan, and to my listeners in New England, I say to you, you're welcome. You see, you guys might remember that last week I told you that I was having a hard time accepting the passing of seasons and that I was trying to hang on to summer in my heart for as long as I could. So I've been refusing all of the new pumpkin stuff that's out now and wearing shorts and t-shirts even when it's cool outside. Well, so far, folks, it's working. We're in mid-September, and this week in Maine, the weather has been in the high 70s uh, to low 80s and sunny. For some of you in the world, you're thinking, Scott, of course it's nice outside. It's only September. You see, I have a long history with Maine and how quickly it gets cold here after Labor Day. So trust me, if it's 80 multiple days in a row in mid-September, then we're having some pretty remarkable weather. So I'll just keep the pumpkin stuff away for now and, you know, stick with sunscreen. Hashtag summer all winter long. Anyway, uh, we're going through the book of James right now, and and last week we studied the first half of James chapter 2 by looking at our call to be impartial and how we love others. Now we're getting into a biblical hot topic this week as we're looking at a portion of scripture that many a legalist has used to defend legalistic mindsets. Or it's also been used by many who want to point out biblical contradictions by saying that it directly goes against Paul's teaching that justification is by faith alone and not works. Even Martin Luther was quoted as saying, St. James's epistle is really an epistle of straw, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Well, we're going to see through this study that the two actually do coincide with each other very well. I mentioned this several weeks ago, but Paul is answering the question, how is salvation won, while James is answering the question, how is salvation verified? Salvation is given to us through faith alone in Jesus, and our salvation is verified by our works alone. So the theme of our show today is really pointing out the harmony in what Paul and James both teach. Really what this comes down to is words meaning different things. The words that Paul and James used as we read them today contradict each other, but the fact is that the meanings of what they were saying are in perfect harmony. And words can be like that. Look at our language and culture and the word rock. Rock could mean a stone. Rock could mean an awesome kind of music. Rock could mean what granny does in her chair. That's what grannies are for. No, grannies are opponent nudes. Or it could be the name of a person. Here's an astounding fact that should blow you away. According to Google, there are just over 170,000 words in the English language. But the Greek? The Guinness Book of Records ranked the Greek language as the richest in the world with 5 million words. So you can see how there might be some bigger and deeper and better explained meanings in the original biblical text that get a little lost in our current English translations. 
That's why I'm always saying on this show that we can't just read the Bible on the surface. God has given us special revelation in his word, and we need to look deeper into it so that we can fully grasp who he is and who we are and what his purpose is for us. So let's just go ahead and read this portion of scripture, and then we're going to talk about this. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. All right. When James wrote this, he was piggybacking off of what we saw last week. James has just said in the first half of chapter two that Christians should be impartial in their love and service to others. All James is doing now is continuing on with practical application, and he uses the concepts of righteousness and justification in the sense of actual, measurable, and real goodness. James didn't have in mind what Paul taught about imputed righteousness here. It's doubtful that, um, that that even entered his mind when he brought up Abraham in Genesis 15. James didn't have any theological applications in mind here. This was simply a practical application. He wasn't discussing the question of how Abraham was set right with God or how faith was credited as righteousness. Paul discussed that aspect of things. James and Paul both quoted the same verses, but James was concerned with it as proof that Abraham, when put to the test, lived up to his faith. James isn't contradicting Paul here. He's teaching something compatible with Paul, and he's actually correcting a misuse and misunderstanding of Paul's teaching that was happening in the church. Now, Paul knew that his teaching on justification by faith alone was being distorted and misused by some who were saying, you know, well, if we're justified while we're ungodly by faith alone, and this magnifies the grace of God, uh, then let's just keep sinning because we're secure anyway and God's grace will get more glory. He even shows us that he's aware of it because he identifies this problem in Romans chapter 3, verse 8, when, when Paul says this. He says, And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come? Their condemnation is deserved. 
he knows he's being misrepresented. Hey, did you hear? Paul says that the more evil you do, the more good comes of it because God's grace is glorified in justifying the ungodly. Paul answered that situation when he wrote Romans chapter 6, verse 1, and he said, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, For you were called to be free, brothers. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for flesh, but serve one another through love. Basically, Paul is saying, don't take your Christian liberty and try to turn liberty into license. And then here's where some of that harmony with James can be found. When you go back in Galatians 5, uh, back a few verses into verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. Paul dealt with the abuse of his doctrine of justification by faith alone. He says, it's not added works like circumcision that's going to win God's favor. It's faith working through love. And that's really the key uh, here. That is the definition of the faith that Paul is talking about when he says we are justified by faith alone. It's not a hollow or general acknowledgement of Christ. It's a faith that works through love. He says that what counts with God is the kind of faith that by its nature produces love, but it's faith that gives us our right standing with God. The love that comes from it only shows that it's, in fact, real, living, and justifying faith. And that goes right along with James, who gives us the practical application side of this in James chapter 2. James was trying to get across to these Jewish Christians that faith without love is absolutely useless. And anybody that comes along and says, we are justified by faith alone, and so you don't have to be a loving person to go to heaven, they're misunderstanding the truth. So really, everything that James is saying is just going along uh, with correcting the misunderstanding of Paul's teaching. So verse 14, he says, what good is it? This is back in James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? James is concerned about counterfeit faith. Faith that can't put its money where its mouth is. Faith that doesn't have the loving actions to back it up. And the works that James is talking about are very practical. Like I said, this is a practical application. These are the same works that Paul was concerned with, uh, which are works of love. Faith working through love, right? James gives a very simple example in verse 15 that had to do with a practical situation happening in the Jerusalem church at that time. At this point, the brand new church that was born at Pentecost had started experiencing the breakdown in their system of communal living. That kind of living started towards the end of Acts chapter 2. But then flesh and humanity rose up and things like fraud happened in Acts chapter 5. And then there started to become arguments about distribution in Acts chapter 6. And because human nature is what it is, the system broke down and there started to become a problem with a growing amount of poor people. 
Then things started getting worse when the unsaved version of Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was persecuting Christians and leaving widows and orphans behind him. So there was a big problem, and James uses it as the opportunity for Christians to prove their faith with acts of kindness, love, and generosity. He says in verse 15, If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? You know, there are times where God just expects us to do something when a situation requires action. We don't need to sit back and take a week to pray about whether or not we should help the poor. We don't need to ask God's permission uh, to make a difference in people's lives with the love of Jesus. We've already got those orders. And here's the bottom line, verse 17, in the same way faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. We start seeing some different sides to non-working faith that James lays out for us. First, he says that if our faith isn't backed up by works of love, then it's dead. We must have a belief that behaves. Not just an intellectual faith that acknowledges Jesus' good works and then ignores the people uh, or the needs of people uh, around us. That kind of faith is dead. And he says in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith from my works. Basically, James is just saying that sometimes all people do is say that they have faith with nothing real to back it up. But I, James, can show you uh, by what I do that my faith is real and it means something to me. James says it needs to be more than just saying that you believe. In verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. So basically he says, you say you believe? Well, big whoop-dee-doo, so don't the demons. They even believe more. I mean, they've known God intellectually longer than we have, and because they believe in him, they shudder, they tremble. They believe in God, and they're terrified of him. They are very well aware of the doom that awaits them. Not only is loveless faith dead, but he calls it useless. In verse 20, he says, Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? The word for foolish here can be translated as empty. Empty man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? That word for willing is a Greek word called thalo. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Which means to wish or to desire. Uh, this word means a desire that leads to resulting action. So when he says, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? He's not just repeating the idea of faith without works is dead. He's questioning the reader. He's saying, look, does this register with you? Are you willing to make better decisions based on the facts? Well, we're going to continue this study when we come back and look at verses 21 through 26. But first, we're going to hear from our friend Todd Nelton over at Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Don't go away. We're coming right back. Where truth and entertainment are BFFs. The Edge Podcast with Scott Logan. Hi, I'm Todd Nettleton, and this is the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. When Ahmad left Islam to pursue Christ, he knew there would be consequences. 
Although his Palestinian birthplace is only a few miles away from where Jesus was born, Ahmad grew up in a Muslim family. After converting, Muslim authorities arrested and beat Ahmad on several occasions. They made it clear to him that the pain could stop at any time, if only he'd return to Islam. But Ahmad refused. His faith remained in Christ. This faith cost him his life. Ahmad's legacy continues, and Christ is faithfully proclaimed in Palestinian areas. Will you join me to pray for Palestinian Christians that they will stand strong in their faith? I will not let my brothers and sisters suffer in silence, nor will I let them serve alone. To join me in prayer for persecuted Christians, go to vomradio.net. You're listening to the home for Bible geeks everywhere. This is The Edge Podcast with Scott Logan. Welcome back to the show. We're in verse 21 now where James starts referencing the story of Abraham, which to some uh, may seem like it conflicts with Paul's take on it. But again, they're talking um, of two different sides of the story here. He says in verse 21, James chapter 2, verse 21, Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works, faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So James takes two events in the life of Abraham. In verse 23, he talks about God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where God promises Abraham a great number of descendants, even though his wife was barren. It says in Genesis uh, 15, 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Paul quotes that event and that verse 2 in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. One thing is credited as righteousness here, only one thing, and that is faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited as righteousness. Faith, not works, was credited as righteousness. But then James notices that in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, that God tested Abraham by commanding him to offer up his son Isaac. Well, what was God testing for? He was testing Abraham's faith. He was looking for the kind of obedience or works that shows Abraham's faith wasn't dead faith or just intellectual or empty. So James's point in verse 21, where Abraham offers Isaac, is not that it was the first act of justification that put Abraham in a right standing with God. The issue was about the test. Was Abraham's faith the living kind of faith that produces uh, obedience of faith? Or was it just the dead kind that has no effect on your life? And then in verse 25, he says, and in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? Now, for those of you who may not know, in the book of Joshua, Rahab was a prostitute who lived in Jericho in the promised land and assisted the Israelites in capturing the city. In the New Testament, she was praised as an example of living by faith uh, while being considered righteous by her works. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was just going to tell you to read the story on your own time, but I feel now like I would be doing our study some injustice if I 
took a look at verse 25, which pretty much expects you to know who Rahab is, and not address it. So here is Joshua chapter 2. It's another one of those exciting escape stories in the Bible. So guys, let's cue up the action music. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies from the Acacia Grove, saying, Go and scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left, and they came to the house of a woman, a prostitute named Rahab, and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, Yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the gate was about to close, the men went out, and I don't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. The men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as they left to pursue them, the gate was shut. Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my family, because I showed kindness to you, give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them and save us from death. The men answered her, we will give our lives for yours. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then she let them down by a rope through the window since she lived in the house that was built into the wall of the city. Go to the hill country so that the men pursuing you won't find you, she said to them. Hide yourselves there for three days and until they return, afterward, go on your way. The men said to her, we will be free from this oath you made us swear, unless when we enter the land, you tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's family into your house. If anyone goes out the doors of your house, his blood will be on his own head, and we will be innocent. But if anyone with you in the house should be harmed, his blood will be on our heads. And if you report our mission, we are free from the oath you made us swear. Let it be as you say, she replied, and she sent them away. After they had gone, she tied the scarlet cord to the window. So the two men went into the hill country and stayed there three days until the pursuers had returned. They searched all along the way, but did not find them. Then the men returned, came down from the hill country, and crossed the Jordan. They went to Joshua, son of Nun, and reported everything that had happened to them. They told Joshua, the Lord has handed over the entire land to us. Everyone who lives in the land is also panicking because of us. So that's the story of Rahab in a nutshell. 
Um, anyway, back to James. James concludes with this, verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You know what? A corpse is pretty useless. No matter how much you try to poke or prod it to do something, the only thing it ever does is just decay and smell and do nothing else other than those things. Not that I know that by experience. That is only intellectual knowledge, by the way. But that's what James says faith without works is. Without love, faith is useless. The Spirit of God is not in dead faith. God calls us to have beliefs that behave. And the sooner dead faith gets buried like the corpse that it is, the better. So, Paul and James were very much on the same page with no contradictions. When Paul renounces justification by works, he's shooting down the view that anything we do along with faith is credited to us as righteousness. It's only faith that obtains this verdict of not guilty when we become Christians. Works of any kind are not acceptable in the moment of initial justification. But when James says justification by works, he means that works are absolutely necessary in the ongoing life of a Christian to prove the reality of the faith that justifies them. And that, my friends, is James chapter 2. We'll be right back right after this. This is the place where awesome lives. Turn that up. The Edge Podcast with Scott Logan. The Edge Podcast with Scott Logan is a proud partner of JesusFreakHideout.com. JesusFreakHideout.com is one of the world's largest Christian music online resources. Featuring music news, videos, album release dates, album reviews, artist interviews, devotionals, and a lot more. The goal is simple, to bring the latest and greatest in Christian music to the internet masses and beyond. For more information, visit www.jesusfreakhideout.com. You're listening to the home for Bible geeks everywhere. This is the Edge Podcast with Scott Logan. Welcome back to the show. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Edge Podcast. If you want to know more about the Edge Podcast, then please check out our website, theedgepodcast.com. All of my social links are in the top right corner of the page. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at edgepodcast1. When we get into James chapter 3, we're going to be talking about what might be one of my worst vices ever, and that is the inability to control my tongue. I know, with that vice, you're probably thinking, wow, radio was a great choice. I'll see you guys next week. Don't forget, live on the edge. You've been listening to The Edge Podcast with Scott Logan. Visit the website, www.theedgepodcast.com for a complete list of episodes, blogs, merchandise, and more. And above all else, live on the edge.